Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Welcome once again, everyone, to another episode of Conversations That Matter. I'm your host, John Harris, as always, here to uh, talk to you a little bit about something I'm excited about today, which is Reformation theology, specifically public theology uh, during the time of the Reformation, the relationship of church-state, the relationship the Reformers had to culture. Uh, These are uh, topics that have a lot of questions attached to them today, and there's a lot of controversies today, as many of you know surrounding these topics. And so uh, to to help me, to give me some expertise on this, I've invited my former professor at Liberty University, Dr. Benjamin Eswine, who is an expert at Reformation history to help me. Thank you for joining me, Dr. Eswine. Thanks, John. I appreciate uh, you having me. I uh, haven't listened to any of your uh, podcasts, but I know you have a, a dedicated group of, of uh, followers. And so uh, I'm happy to kind of reach out. And that's kind of why I like doing this is connecting with with uh, groups I don't normally connect with. Yeah, well, Keep as a the pro- dialogue going right <laughs> as a professor, though, I, you know, I wonder whether you have time to listen to any podcasts because <laughs> of your schedule. It's probably just too much. You, usually when somebody sends me one to listen, I'll try to. But yeah, it's limited. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you, you keep a very tight schedule. And, and even now, um, the reason we're doing it uh, in the summer. Uh, well, I guess effectively it's summer is because you, yeah. you're off uh, and you don't have as many responsibilities. So um, so a lot of these questions that I know I sent you some some questions before we did the podcast, mm-hmm. just so you know what the topics would be. But, you know, these I don't think they're going away. These are questions um, reformed evangelical Christians, especially, but even broader evangelicalism. Uh, people are asking these and um, I, I don't know whether it's the situation we're in now because things have secularized so much that we're we're, we're losing our freedoms, we're losing religious liberty, and we're wondering what can we do to protect ourselves. I don't know what's exactly bringing this about, probably a combination of things. Um, but you've studied so much of the Reformation, and you know, I, I think maybe a good starting place would be how the Reformers conceived of a nation. Because a lot of the debate seems to center around what is a nation? Just like what is a woman? What is a pastor? What what is a nation? What are is America a nation? Is Virginia like what would the reformers say to that? What what do you think their conception was? Yeah, um, you know, there's it's these are fascinating questions. I and I uh, glad glad you're asking them. I think that um, you know. The, the first the first thing to note is that the Reformation took place uh, what we call the early modern period so it's a period uh, you know 1517 uh, when the 
95 theses are nailed to the Wittenberg uh, door cathedral uh, and perhaps also mailed. He may have also mailed them. Uh, but the, the point being that uh, that's usually the beginning point of that. And then from there, what goes on is you have a uh, series of movements, not just Luther, but multiple different groups and people uh, attempting to enact reforms uh, throughout uh, Europe at the time. And it's really the beginning of what we call the early modern period. Uh, so this is the, the formative period. It's the period that began or formed modern society. This is the society we live in today. Uh, and that's, so as a result, there are things about the Reformation that we recognize, things that we understand. Uh, and then there's a lot of things we don't get or understand or recognize because it's uh, from the Middle Ages. There's still a, a large uh, a large holdover from the Middle Ages that is uh, pushing uh, into that era. And so Luther really acts as one of these uh, transitionary figures and the Reformation acts as a transitionary movement uh, where, you know, a lot of these ideas are not formed yet. Uh, a lot of these ideas are still forming. Uh, so uh, one of those would be uh, this idea of na nationhood or a nation. Uh, the term nation uh, was used as, you know, as far back, obviously, the uh, biblical times uh, and and it has been translated, the Hebrew scriptures, certain words have been translated as nation, uh, which uh, refers to, uh, you know, the, the, the Jewish people or, or different groups like that. But at the same time, the context and the ways that they're using it are very different from uh, what we think of as na nationhood or nationalism, uh, which is sort of a product of the Enlightenment and also of the uh, the revolutionary era, so the American Revolution and the French Revolution, specifically in the late 1700s, uh, that's where really we get the modern concept of nationhood or the nationalism from. Uh, before that, people talk about things like that are more, I guess, we could term patriotism, ideas of being uh, loyal to your fatherland or to your homeland, your birthland. Uh, the place where you you came from, but that is ill-defined. It's not well-defined or understood what that means, and it's usually much more local. It's usually usually much more regional. So the reformers are in that mindset when they when they're discussing and and uh, looking at these different uh, attempts to reform society to bring uh, Christian teaching to bear upon uh, not only a, a change in the church structure that's going on, but also on society, they're doing it from a local regionalized perspective. They're, they're not thinking of it from some sort of grand, large uh, overview. And, and so that, that's important to note. So uh, for them, uh, the ideas of a nation probably hold a very loose, loose uh, connotations. It's not, it's not specific to a given people. Or, or even uh, a large, uh, a large uh, section ethnicity. Even uh, it would be something uh, connected to uh, sort of probably certain linguistic, and I would say uh, perhaps uh, connected to uh, a political boundary, uh, and, and it would be something that would be connected to. Um, discussions of who's in control of, of which prince 
is is looking at at control of that. So it's certainly uh, something that lacks some of the social or or, or even ethnic uh, ties that we have today. Uh, and they're looking at it from the basis of, of a region, a territory, and the prince who's over that, that uh, state. So it's, it's kind of the beginnings of the idea of a state of a nation, uh, and that they're, they're starting to form it, but it is not fully functioned. So they, their thoughts on this are, hey, we are, uh, we're, we're establishing a spiritual reform, and how that plays out then upon the physical will depend on each given region. They really are much more regionalized. So, so, so what I'm, and that's fascinating. What I'm hearing you saying is that uh, this is more organic to them in a pre-modern world. This is something that is is more assumed and is uh, you know it when you see it because you live it, and yeah. it's not something that you can abstractly define with ten points or. Uh, the idea of the nation state and now the modern state where you have a, a certain people must be under this one government. They, they had, uh, I don't know if it, was, it wasn't federalism, I guess, but a feudalism where um, th things were very localized. And so, um, so it's just a different world. So, so is asking this question, even a form of presentism to say, well, what would they have thought a, a nation is? Well, they, I mean, they didn't think of it the same way we did. <laughs> yeah, it's a good point. Um, you know, with, uh, looking at Luther specifically, and even Calvin, some of the others, they're in the uh, Holy Roman Empire, right? So even the Swiss Confederation, which is made up of city-states, essentially cantons, as they're known, and each canton votes for their own magistrates and, and people, but they exist within this larger, what's known as the Holy Roman Empire, this larger entity that existed but it is actually uh, sort of a precursor even to federalism in that sense where you have these uh the, this union between these these different groups they're united by the the empire emperor himself uh and and his imperial administration and then by uh, a sense of of christian connectedness through the church but those things are are very um again in terms of how they interact at the local level, it's very nebulous. It's there's there's no clear uh, design as to how that is supposed to go. So yeah, absolutely. There's it's not at all um, fully worked out. I would say that there's a, there's a lack of ideology behind it, right? So the nation state is clearly ideologically driven. Right. Yeah. No, that's a good one. Uh, good point there because um, I, one of my hangups with the term Christian nationalism, even if in the best um, construction of that, it, it's it, that that it does seem like that that term comes from modernity. That that term is a a, a modern um, innovation, and uh, yeah, nation states are, are are somewhat of a new thing. And um, yeah. I I think one way to get at this question is also to ask, what did they think? And, and I know Luther's, I think, written about this of, of Jewish people and gypsies and maybe even Muslims uh, who would live in their midst. Would they be part of would they consider them part of the laws that would govern the land that they were in or were they outsiders or how are they treated? Yeah. So and and that's a good they would never use a term nation state, like you said, as a result. And, and so these would be other peoples, other groups that existed and in terms of whether or not they're part of uh, that identity of that region, they would probably use the term commonwealth. Commonwealth was a term that was used a lot. Uh, and that essentially was synonymous to an idea of a res publica or a, 
a, you know, a, a common public good uh, or, or bringing together of, of, the, uh, of what the needs of the community of, of that region are. Uh, and so, you know, very Roman in, in that sense, but it's also uh, connected to this idea that in terms of your identity, and in particular talking about Jews and other groups like that, um, that's a lot of that is based not so much upon ethnicity as it is upon upon religious affiliation. Uh, and so if you look at Luther's writings, um, there, there's two Luthers, right? We always talk about there's the, there's the young Luther who's, you know, very bold and brash and, right. um, you know, he's not afraid to speak his mind. But at the same time, he's fairly open to ideas of reform from all over the place. There's even a time early on in Luther's writings where, you know, he's actually working out his ideas on, on baptism. Even he hasn't quite figured out where he stands on that. So, you know, there's all these what ifs of had he, you know, moved more in in one direction or another, how would that have changed the Lutheran church, the reformation as a whole, things like that. But um, yeah, that in those early days, and part of this was his probably as he was learning and, and uh, connected to the universities there, He's coming into contact with all sorts of different groups, including Jews, including uh, different people, some of whom would have probably connected to him as scholars. There were some uh, Jewish converts to Christianity that he came into contact with, people like that. So um, he he would have seen this in a religious sense, first and foremost, uh, not in the ethnic sense of today. And early on, uh, he would have seen Jews fairly favorably, right? In, in uh, the early 1520s, he writes that famous pamphlet that Jesus Christ was born a Jew. And he, he states in it, not only one of the first Europeans to acknowledge that Jesus was Jewish, which you know, took them a thousand years to acknowledge that. But right. uh, he, not only does he do that, but he essentially advocates not using any violence against Jews, uh, but instead trying to you know convert them through action and through, uh, you know, love and, and grace and mercy. And, and so that, that's his early, or early views on that. As he gets older, he turns into the grumpy Luther, right? That's the other Luther where he gets older. He's a little more cantankerous. He's seen a little bit more. Some of his Reformation ideas have been very uh, uh, upset or overturned. His ideas have been taken in all sorts of different directions that he never wanted them to be taken, stuff like that. Kind of gives him uh, a mindset that uh, that's a little bit less interested in in that that forward thinking uh and so as a result he uh becomes a little more hostile towards those groups specifically and of course the famous pamphlet later in his life is uh, one of his last pamphlets actually is on on the jews and their lies uh where he really goes after them uh specifically again relating to a couple things that he targets in it one he targets what he sees as blasphemy he thinks that if they're uh, essentially if they're preaching in their synagogues that Jesus is not the Son of God, that that should not be allowed in a in a Christian realm, and that a Christian prince has a duty then to uh, remove that from his realm. That's that's what he says there. Uh, and then uh, secondly, uh, that you know that that it could have consequences judgment wise upon a society if that's allowed. Uh, so it needs to be get gotten rid of. So. He's more worried about what they're teaching religiously. And then he says that uh, 
if they don't stop teaching that, that then they should be uh, expelled. Uh, and uh, so, but he never advocates bodily harm to Jews. Uh, I think that that's, that's a key differentiation there. Uh, he never says to kill or murder or get, get, get them, you know, to be removed physically, but he does advocate that if, if they're teaching blasphemy, that they should be uh, removed and their, and their, you know, synagogues destroyed. So he, he, he advocates yeah. destruction of property, things like that. So, uh, you know, people get on him about that. Certainly many of his friends at the time did not want him to publish, told him not to publish that pamphlet. And he did it anyway. It's his least, uh, least, uh, purchased pamphlet of all his pamphlets on the Jews and, and their lies, uh, did not sell well. Most of the other pamphlets were bestsellers. He sold millions of copies, all sorts of things, uh, that were record breaking at the time and not so with that one. So, uh, yeah, you know, the groups like that. And I, and I think he says a few things about gypsies, not so much. Uh, but certainly, uh, I would say, you know, Luther was an equal opportunity basher, right? He would bash anybody, uh, that disagreed with him. And so, you know, the things that he said about Jews weren't right, but he said some pretty nasty things about papists, about uh, Muslims, about different groups as well, uh, you know, Anabaptists, etc. So, uh, yeah, he, he um, Luther always spoke his mind and sometimes that got him into trouble. Well, one of the things in, in On the Jews and Their Lies, when I was reading it for um, for Holocaust class, actually, because I, I was writing a paper to basically point out some of the things you just pointed out that, look, this wasn't an, an ethnic thing in, this, in a genetic sense. This yeah. was a, a religious issue. Uh, but he he does complain, I remember at one point, about how the Jews would trade with the Ottomans, and he suspected subversion of uh of germany and in the yeah. west I, I guess beyond that because the ottomans were clear enemies how did the crusades and uh well uh, just the situation with um having the, to the east this muslim empire um affect uh the the reformers and and what did yeah. like uh, i guess the, the, the deeper question would be does that give us any insight in what they thought of a Christian people or a Christian government or what the responsibilities were to protect from this empire? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's key to why some of this is changing in Luther's mind. Uh, we forget that, you know, these people were uh, affected by the events of their times, just like we're affected today. 9-11, different things have affected our our mentality or our views on the world. That's exactly, exactly what happens to Luther and the others. Uh, Luther was certainly affected by the, uh, the invasion of the Ottoman Turks into central Europe there. They had a major victory over the uh, kingdom of Hungary uh, in between 1525 and 1526. They conquered the kingdom of Hungary, uh, the battle of Mohach, uh, was a major victory for them. It essentially obliterated the kingdom, killed the, the king of Hungary was killed and the Ottomans took over. Uh, and then they advanced on on Austria, which was part of the Holy Roman Empire at the time, and the Habsburgs who were the princes over that. And so they actually were besieging Vienna in 1529. Uh, so you can see that therefore in, in Luther's writings that after those events, uh, he he is very worried about the Turks much more so than he had been beforehand. Luther had always preached and continued to preach uh, that the, the the Crusades did not work and we should not push for Crusades. Crusades were bad, in his opinion, because uh, obviously they're, 
they went against the the so-called Christian virtues that they were supposed to uphold, right? The, the, the main Christian virtue that was at the core of the Crusades was the idea of loving one's brother, right? Uh, to, to fight for one's brother, to uh, protect the pilgrims and the Christians who were uh, going to the Holy Land. That was the original purpose of the Crusades. And so to that extent, uh, it was actually a very noble goal, but it had been polluted and corrupted by, you know, attempts to gain gold. And then, of course, of course, the Pope had said that anyone who was killed on crusade was granted an indulgence. And, of course, Luther was completely against indulgences because they're not scriptural. So it had been corrupted and led to all sorts of catastrophes and, and destruction that never, never would have happened if the sort of the original intent of the crusade had been upheld. Uh, so Luther completely did away with that and said, no, we, we don't want uh, crusades. Uh, and, but at the same time, he certainly believed in sort of a, a territorial defense of Europe, that the Ottomans should be uh, stopped, that they, you know, Europeans should do, particularly German, the German lands, the Ger German uh, princes should ba band together and fight uh, fight the Turks. So he, he was okay with that for the defense of the realm, but he certainly uh, disagreed with the idea of a crusade. One of the questions that comes up is concerning the Mosaic Law. And whether or not the principles or specifically laws from the time of Moses and the giving of the Torah apply to us today, and if so, how do they apply? How do the reformers, I know we've been talking a lot about Luther, but I'm sure this is going to get into Calvin and Zwingli and others. How did they look at that question? Did they tell the Christian prince in their area, look, you got to apply these laws? Because um, obviously they have to disciple the people who are now the new converts to Protestantism. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I, a little bit of backstory to that to get a perspective on that how the Reformation branches out from Luther specifically, because uh, he's only you know like you said the first of many uh, different reformers. And I think to that extent, uh, to answer that question, we have to kind of look at that change how it, it spread out from him. His ideas. Obviously, once they're put in print and they're spread, there's no copyright laws back then. So they spread like wildfire. People are copying them left and right, and uh, they're just disseminating all over the place. So uh, as a result, anyone who agrees with Luther obviously can kind of take his ideas and march with them as far as they want uh, or add to them or expand on them in some way. And that's what happens. Uh, so Luther's ideas, particularly, um, it's not so much the 95 Theses, that those gain him a lot of traction and notoriety, but it's his later pamphlets, usually what's looked upon as the three treatises, which would be um, uh, the Babylonian Captivity of the Papacy, uh, the Address to the German Nobility, uh, and then on the Freedom of a Christian. Those three pamphlets essentially outline Luther's theology. And again, Luther always in, insisted that he was looking for a spiritual reform. Uh, and that was uh, something that he would adamantly hang on to when, for instance, more radical Anabaptist groups arose. And he would look at, upon them as uh, co contrary to what he was teaching because he would say they're taking them and they're applying them in a, in a literal, uh, physical sense where I'm looking at this from a spiritual and, and a heart-based uh, change in reform. And so that that's where the first big 
division occurs. Uh, and this occurs actually while he's away after the Dia de Forms in 1521. He has to leave. He has to go into hiding because technically his life uh, could be taken at any moment. Anyone, once the emperor and the pope have issued their de decrees excommunicating him and issuing uh, that he could be executed, uh, then anyone can do that. Anyone can go up and just kill Luther. So he has to go into hiding and uh, he goes to the Wartburg castle. Uh, and in doing that, uh, he loses track of his own reformation for a bit. He's up there. He does some amazing things. He translates the Bible into uh, German from uh, Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and he does it very quickly over about three months. He translates the New Testament. So he's very fast in his translation. Uh, and it's a very good translation. It's a very solid translation. Uh, and it proves that Luther is definitely up there among the best Greek scholars in, in Europe at that time. Uh, he certainly understood his Greek very well. Uh, but all that is to say that he's distracted. The Reformation goes off in a different direction uh, at Wittenberg. Specifically, it falls under the uh, control of several of his, what are known as his lieutenants, right? Luther's lieutenants, these other guys who were, uh, you know, essentially learning under Luther and were connected to him, but uh, uh, took orders from him, but then they they disseminated this information elsewhere. Karlstadt uh, was one of those. Karlstadt goes on to go very, I think, easily to the point of understanding that many of the spiritual reforms and changes that Luther is talking about is going to have flow over into very physical things. For instance, to give you just two examples, one would be a tithing. Uh, tithing in the Middle Ages was an actual tax that was collected by the nobles on behalf of the church. And so the nobles uh, were, would collect the tithe from the peasants and from everyone else. Uh, they would give it to the church uh, and probably skim a little bit off the top for themselves in the process. Uh, and then the church would take it and usually it would go to Rome, and then Rome would then sort of send a few pennies back to to the local congregation. So the tithe was rarely ever used locally. It always went to Rome. And so that, that was a major issue. So you have to reform that, but that means you have to change the whole social structure, the ways in which politics works. Uh, and then you have to change, uh, the other one would be uh, idols or, or icons specifically, which again, many... Protestants looked upon as idols in the church. Well, what do you do with them? How do you get rid of them? Do you destroy them, smash them? That's what the iconoclasts would say. Karlstadt certainly preached that. Uh, Luther didn't want that. He wanted to get rid of the icons out of the church. He didn't want them in the church at all, but he didn't want to destroy them because he thought that they were beautiful works of art. Uh, so he wanted to just remove them and put them somewhere else. Uh, so you had those two views differing there. That's what gives rise to all these different reformers. They have different ways of connecting with that on a local level. So that's what has to be decided. Uh, what extent are we going to enact reforms? How many of Luther's ideas can we embrace? And then physically, what does that mean for our society? Uh, it, because now we have to restructure our churches, restructure our governmental order, there's no separation of church and state or anything like that. So what one side does, the other essentially backs up in some way. But now that you have a reformer, you have on the one hand, you have a prince. On the other hand, you have a reformer. And they're supposed to work together. 
but where's that line? Where where does one you know power begin and where does the other one end? Right. So those are what each reformer is is uh, looking to do, and that's where it diverges away from Luther. Well, you know, the classic example given is is Servetus, and that Calvin's uh, killing Servetus is a uh, that's the reason that we should never uh, enforce. Um, I don't want to say mosaic, but we, we shouldn't enforce uh, laws that are only fit for the church in the civil realm because it'll lead to this kind of tyranny and, and tyranny over Anabaptists and uh, that this is no different than the way that the Catholics treated the Protestants. And, um, you know, I, I'd be curious what you have to say about that, because that's a debate currently over whether or not uh, we here in the United States in some regions should well I, I just saw recently and i think it was minnesota if i'm not mistaken they uh there i think it was saint paul they passed a law to allow the muslim call to prayer at all hours of the night in certain communities and so forth and so people are debating like is this sh should we do that should we um are, are we christians here and and, in, and and as christians do we go with the church bells or do we uh, allow these other groups to come in and, and there is going to be a conflict like there th th you, you can't have them both necessarily one is going to win out over the other and so um so 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 the drawing those lines um i don't know if you have any personal opinions you want to put into this but what would the reformers say you think if they lived today in this situation yeah that's a great that's a great uh great question yeah you know so those those um ideas Again, it's it's a it's a fine line. I think when you're talking about um, the church bell specifically, most there's a lot of ordinances and stuff that have been put out to silence those, right. which is interesting in a lot of communities. Whereas beforehand, they used to ring out every Sunday or or you know on holidays, things like that. Uh, yeah, there, that's you know that's not something you see if you go to Europe today. If you go to Europe, for instance, because Technically, there's no separation of church and state in Europe. Uh, so, for instance, in Lutheran communities, they still follow Lutheran holidays. In 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 Catholic communities, uh, you know, Catholic countries, they still follow uh, Catholic holidays. So they'll ring the the bells in most cities then on those holidays. And so it is a distinctly a Christian phenomenon uh, that would grate against uh, a call to prayer. Although, uh, on on the one hand, a, call a prayer in an Islamic sense, usually in the Islamic countries is magnified by the use of some sort of uh, speaker or, or a microphone uh, right. or something that pushes it out. That's where I think it would be problematic if they started to do that in communities uh, in the United States, as opposed to uh, just if, if they were just shouting it out, I don't know what how far they'd be able to actually be heard anyway. So if they're within their little Muslim community, that may not be as big of an issue. But I think in terms of what the reformers would say on that, um, yeah, it, it's there, there's no separation of church and state at that time. Separation of church and state came about uh, in the writings of the, of the founding fathers, uh, specifically in the United States. Jefferson, among others, are very central to that. Uh, primarily as a way of trying to prevent there from being a state church. They, they uh, were afraid of one specific denomination, one specific group, whether it be the Catholic church or the Anglican church or some church, essentially, you know, 
enforcing its form of of worship on the rest. And so for groups who are like the Puritans or uh, the Moravians or others, that was something that uh, would have jarred with their ability to uh, proselytize, to spread uh, their beliefs and to worship uh, according to their conscience. So that, that would be, I think, the issue for me is that uh, if you taking it back to reformers, the reformers were very much about uh, freedom of conscience and being able to uh, worship and and stand on principle based upon what you believe and according to what your conscience uh, says. So that I think that that's where it would have to the debate would have to be. Well, that's one of the questions I know I'd sent to you, and maybe I could ask uh, two of them in one. I, just how did they apply? Because they they thought the Ten Commandments were applicable. And they thought civil magistrates at least some of the Ten Commandments, uh, if not all, but at least some of them needed to be applied. How did they balance that with freedom of conscience? What, what was the, I mean, did they feel like they had to balance it or was there a conflict? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and that could bring us back to Calvin and in Geneva there with, I mean, he had a lot of, uh, we, we forget this, but him and the, and the city council of Geneva did not get along uh, very well. And so he actually had, a, there was a lot of debate between the city council members and him even over the uh, burning of heretics like uh, Servetus, like you were saying, who was uh, essentially hated in pretty much every city he went to, whether it be Catholic or Protestant. He ends up in Geneva primarily because he believes Geneva is his best chance at surviving. <laughs> uh, every other city had uh, had a, a put out a, uh, a ultimatum that if he was found there, they would they would uh, execute him as a as a heretic. So. Because uh, he'd rejected the Trinity, he rejected very basic uh, Christian doctrines. So uh, in Geneva, he thought he might have a chance, uh, which is it, it tells you a lot about how forgiving Calvin was, because Calvin uh, had confronted him several times, and each told him had each time had told him you, you need to change or or uh, or you need to leave. One of those two, uh, and so the fact that. Uh, it, t- it took four chances before Servetus was finally ar- uh, arrested, and then, and then the the city council was the one that actually condemned him to be burned. Calvin, at first, attempted to get him to be exiled, and then when that didn't work, uh, he attempted to have him just beheaded because he didn't he didn't want him to be burned. Uh, specifically, he thought that that was too sort of part of the medieval world. So that's what we're talking about. Lord, in this point of uh, transition at that time. So to that extent, even Calvin held on to an idea that you can hold a position if it's, uh, you know, your, your conscience dictates to you uh, that this is the position you can hold on to. But the extent to which that needs to be enforced was left up to the magistrates, was left up to the civil society. So you can preach the Ten Commandments, you can preach those laws uh, but it's really up to the civil magistrates to decide how they're going to enforce them. Is is the rule that essentially, practically speaking, that you can you can hold to whatever belief you want. You you are free to think, but as soon as you start to try to undermine the established religion of that particular region, mm-hmm. that's when you run into problems. Because that's what Servetus did, right? It wasn't just that he held these beliefs; it's that he was gaining followers to himself and undermining the local establishment. Correct, correct. Uh, he would do such things as like standing up in the middle of a sermon and argue with the with the preacher about views one way or the other 
other on oh. Christ or <laughs> one of those guys. Community. Yeah, he would have been great I, on Twitter really today. Fun. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we don't. I mean, we don't allow that in our churches today. So why would they have allowed it back then? Uh, so yeah, if if you were disruptive like that, and then and people started to follow you, then uh, th- then it became an issue. Uh, you you could approach somebody like Calvin later and talk to them theologically without there being an issue and and have differences of opinions. But it was when you created a public scene or spectacle that it became seen as imperative to respond to that. So it was seen as disruptive and jarring to society to allow that. Um, At the same time, again, like, like Calvin said, I, I don't obviously think the, burning of heretics does more than simply they're essentially trying to make examples of them what that right. does to actually reform the in, individual is is nothing so it's not i mean it's essentially killing someone to try to prevent others from doing the same is that effective i don't i don't think so historically it doesn't seem to be effective so uh yeah it it's it's more morally not necessarily something that was done even in the early church when they had heretics so it's definitely a, a medieval phenomenon right well, and they so, didn't have the ability in the early church, I suppose, until there was state power that they... Yeah, but even related. then, right, Augustine, others who fought yeah, the legions or the Arius, Arius was never burned as a heretic. That's an so interesting that, point. All right, so no, I, th- th- these are good questions to ponder for people who are considering these things uh, and respect the Reformers. Um, now, the Anabaptists, I want to talk about them a little bit. They pr- had a different view, uh, and I know that that's a big group, and I don't want to paint with a broad brush, but... Yeah. Uh, is it not the case that they wanted to be so separate that they thought even political involvement for a Christian was was maybe not not an option or, or not uh, yeah. holy? Yeah, that, this that's a great question. I think it's one of the most important questions today because um, I, I prefer the term radical than Anabaptist. Anabaptist is a name that they're... Um, enemies called them, right? It means to rebaptize, And it was the fact that essentially they believed in believers baptism. Uh, and so uh, believed that infant baptism was invalid. And so, you know, uh, but they were called rebaptizers. does not apply to everyone who's a radical or everyone who is considered an Anabaptist. There were some Anabaptist groups that practiced infant baptism. There were some that uh, diverged in all sorts of different theological topic. So I think radical is probably a better term for them. There are some Anabaptist groups, what they call Anabaptist groups in Switzerland, for instance, or even Scotland, so, such as the Swiss Brethren or the Scottish Brethren, or some groups like that, uh, that are very much in line with kind of modern congregationalist uh, Protestant thinking, Baptists, specifically Baptist denomination groups like that. Essentially, they form the basis of what becomes those those groups, the Congregationalists and the the Baptists. But on the other hand, you have a huge variety of other groups, such as the the Mennonites and the Amish, which came out of that, the Quakers, all sorts of different groups that, in terms of their theology, very different from from each other uh, and, and wouldn't have wanted to be associated with each other either. So that's why I, th- I think radicals is a better term as opposed to Anabaptist. At the same time, right. with all those groups, the the point of contention there, there's two major ones. One was the the Peasants' War in 1525, 
Uh, and then the other one, which is even bigger, was the Munster Rebellion uh, in, in, uh, starting in 1530, going into 1532, up to 1534 there. Uh, th that's really the point of no return for the radicals or Anabaptists, where they're looked upon as a threat, because they essentially they take over a town, they try to establish this town according, Munster specifically according to uh, Anabaptist principles, uh, or specifically uh, principles that are related to uh, John of Leiden, uh, uh, Matthias, and a few others who were seen as uh, the, the theological leaders of that movement. Uh, but they try to produce this city on a hill, if you will, uh, there. And it goes horribly wrong. And the, the, there's all the, they, they tear down uh, property laws, make everybody share everything in common. They um, practice polygamy. They all sorts of odd things start to occur. And of course, the Protestants and the Catholics kind of move in and, and put an end to that uh, together. Actually, they actually unite to stop that. So I think that the key, the key issue with, the, with these Anabaptist groups, some of which theologically I, I actually agree with, particularly on believers' baptism, um, they tended to not be, not connect with the magistrates, not see the the need for uh, Christians to dialogue with with the rulers of a given area. And of course, that's what the reformers and Protestantism was all about. Calvin, mm. uh, Luther, uh, as the other reformers, Cranmer, uh, you name them, uh, they all they all had in common what's known as being a magisterial reformers, being that they were part of this attempt to uh, to reform society, but do it under the banner, under the guise of of the local authorities, and pretty much creating a dialogue and uh, convincing the local authorities on the need for the, these religious reforms to occur. So the what the radicals are doing is they're dropping all that and saying, no, we're going to do it, and we're going to do it our way, and you know, to heck with with the the civil government, uh, which I think. You know, kind of flies in the face of particularly Romans, where it talks about being respectful of of governance. I think you, you still need to do that as a Christian. So, uh, I, I think the reformers had that in mind, and they believed that they could uh, convince the the local authorities of the need to establish a civil and uh, civil law according to the the Mosaic standard. And for the most part, they were able to do that successfully. It did require a give and take. It did require uh, you know, a, a balanced approach where, you know, of compromise. Uh, and, you know, that that's where I think a lot of times the radicals would would be upset. They feel that they're compromising in areas uh, that, that they weren't willing to compromise. So I think that that's what's behind that. Uh, but I think we have a, a duty as Christians to try to be good citizens. Uh, and I don't know the extent to which, especially with the example of Munster Rebellion and others, that the radicals were good citizens. And, and even today, and I, and I know this sounds maybe judgmental, but uh, some of the radical sects, even in the United States, they don't maybe harm others, but they, they're not willing to defend uh, our country. They're pacifists, things like yeah. that. And, you know, if you get to a like if everyone was of that conviction, we wouldn't have an army. Right. <laughs> like that would be a problem. So it's good that they're smaller groups in a way, um, you know. 
the, we live in a liberal democracy today or a i mean i i say it's a demo it's a, it's a uh, federal republic but i'm broadly speaking in in europe here um and even now in, in other parts of the world who are copying this pattern they want to establish these liberal democracies and the it presents, I, I suppose, a whole new host of problems. And for reformed Christians who live in these areas, they have to navigate these issues. In our context in the United States, I just mentioned the the issue with uh, Muslims. Obviously, there's the LGBT stuff going on um, and different regions are different. I'm, I'm sure in Lynchburg, it's, it's not quite as they're not quite as receptive, perhaps. Now, maybe that's changing, but to a, to a gay pride parade as they would be up here where you would have local politicians go out and endorse the event and speak at the event and that kind of thing. Um, and, and pastors, by the way, too, unfortunately, Pres Presbyterians, Baptists, all of the denominations will come out to support the gay pride parade. It's kind of crazy. So um, all that to say, um, one the question that seems to be arising today uh, more and more is, to what extent does do we allow this kind of thing to continue? What would the reformers have done if they, if Luther saw a gay pride parade coming down the street? What, would he have said, "Oh, you know, that's just freedom of speech, or that's just freedom of assembly, or freedom of conscience, or uh, inalienable rights"? Or would he have said, "No, I mean, that, look, we we got to stop this. This is degrading. You know, children are seeing this. Whatever." And and, and I know this is a a dangerous question in some ways because these weren't circumstances that they were faced with. Um, yeah. And to find similar circumstances, you have to, I guess, you know, the Munster Rebellion or, or come up with, you know, play cross-cultural experiences that they would have had. But, uh, you know, I'm just curious, since you've studied so much of this, what you think, if they were around today, what would they have thought? Would, would they have been like our founding fathers? Would they have been more, I guess they've been more medieval, but would, would they have thought that, uh, you know, look, we, we need to really allow any person who profanes the name of the Lord to be given sanction and, and blasphemy is fine. And um, hopefully I'm, I'm being clear in my question. <laughs> yeah. So it's interesting. I, I mean, a lot of that obviously goes beyond what they uh, intended. <laughs> Certainly. Uh, and so uh, Luther would not have been, he wasn't okay with blasphemy. That's what, that's the main problem he had with the, the, the right. Jewish people specifically. Uh, but he wouldn't have been okay with atheism. I, I don't know of any of the reformers who would have. So in that sense, yeah, that, that is uh, something that they, they would have held against uh, certain, uh, certain extremes. They would have seen the, freedom of conscience to be kept within the bounds of what they saw as natural or sort of a normal, uh, a normal sense of what that should be. Uh, and so again, if, if someone used that as a means to promote a lifestyle or something that was beyond what they were looking to achieve, they would have uh, had a problem with that and certain certainly showed that. Uh, but, uh, you know, Luther is the one who establishes the idea of uh, marriage for clergy again, which had been dropped in the West in the in the 11th century. Uh, w w that's when the Catholic Church had said it was wrong uh, for clerics to marry. Before that, we have plenty of records of priests who marry. And you, uh, we were talked earlier about the Orthodox Church. The Orthodox Church never uh, has never banned their clergy from marrying uh, priests specifically. So, 
yeah, that, so he brings that back in the West. He um, establishes that relationship between uh, a man and a woman in a very positive way. Uh, Luther is considered to be the, the founder of what we call the nuclear family in that sense. Him really? and Catherine von Bora uh, really set that example, that tone. Uh, and, and so to that extent, he's extremely foundational to the modern lifestyle of, of the family unit specifically. Uh, you know, before that, there are all sorts of definitions of what a family should be uh, in the medieval sense, specifically, for instance, in Italy, in uh, the Middle Ages, uh, a family unit would have not simply a father and a mother and children, but it would have a grandparents, usually aunts and uncles. Everybody lived under one roof, right? There was no clear uh, delineation. It's it's uh, it's interesting. L- yeah, Luther's the one, and of course the other reformers follow that. Calvin, Cranmer, others all all do the same thing, and the idea is to, uh, by example, show what a a good Christian household should look like. Uh, so they certainly would promote marriage specifically between a man and a woman, and and with with children specifically for the purpose of having children. That's how they would define it, actually is that marriage, the purpose of marriage is for having children specifically. Uh, that, that's how they would see it. Dude, that's fascinating because, you know, I never thought of that. That's a, literally a new thought for me. Uh, you know, living in upstate New York, I'm close enough to New York City that we have a fairly strong Italian presence here and, and of course, other immigrants. Uh, and, and I have noticed that um, sometimes in these more traditional Italian families, um, they are a little more like what you just described and, yeah. uh, and, and, and Hispanic families, Hispanic, uh, even more sure. so. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, when I go, cause I like to go out hiking and stuff and I'll go to this waterfall. that's not far. And there's certain, um, groups of people, uh, Hispanic, uh, Latino people, and then, um, uh, Indian people specifically that when they come it, they're bringing grandma, they're bringing, you know, that's the whole plan. Yeah. Everyone's yeah. there. And, and they're not doing the physically exerting things that are going to prevent certain members from participating. Whereas you, you notice when you get to, to the higher trails, right, where it's harder to hike and so forth, you see more white people. And, I, and it's just it, it, it's a dynamic I've never really thought about a whole lot, but it, maybe it does trace in some ways back to what you're saying, that this, um, in, this family unit that was inclusive of grandparents and uncles and aunts and so forth is, is at play in more of those latin countries that that's interesting yeah never thought yeah of it. it is and, and again it's a cultural difference uh i i don't i, I would say it in that regard that those are not um things that are wrong per se if you have a larger perspective on on family i'm talking about theologically but uh yeah for for um for, for what Luther and the reformers, and that's the question I was trying to answer, what they're trying to establish. Right, right, right. It was that, you know, core nucleus of a family, the nuclear family, as we call it, of the mother, the father, and the children specifically, that that was key to ingraining virtue and in training up children properly uh, in, in the way that they should go, as the Bible says. So that that's, that's, you know, at the core of that, how that is adapted in, society today in sort of the multicultural settings that we have uh i you know there, there's many different ways to do that uh but i don't think that takes away from the fact that uh you know there was a statement there that luther was making on on that when he did that yeah 
Well, we've been going about an hour, so I don't want to take up too much more of your time. But um, this has been fascinating. And, you know, I could rabbit trail on a lot of these things because it's interesting to me. But um, I appreciate you weighing in. Is there anywhere I, I should have asked this at the beginning, but I don't know if you have a website or anywhere you want to send people. Uh, I don't Do you do blogging or anything like that? I don't do blogging. I, I might. It's uh, or at least uh, maybe you've interested me in the podcasts here. So it'd be interesting to do a Reformation podcast. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I, I haven't uh, done anything like that. I think, um, you know, th there's a, a lot of good resources out there on the reformers that you can read. Uh, and, and the point here being that, you know, not every reformer got everything right. Not every reformer uh, figured it out, so to speak. But, you know, we can use the ability of hindsight here to determine, I think, a lot of the things that they did right and keep those. I don't think we should completely toss out everything that they said. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the ideas that that uh, are useful reincorporate into the society in a way that uh, is is helpful and useful to uh, producing uh, meaningful reform and change, bet bettering people's lives specifically. Uh, and I think certainly in terms of spreading the gospel, they would have seen that as key to doing that. Yeah. So uh, if you go on like uh, post-Reformation uh, digital library, post-Reformation di digital library. There's a bunch of of uh, writings of different reformers on there, um, and and there's so there's a lot of different digital collections that you can really get into. Uh, you know, Gu Project Gutenberg has a lot of their writings as well. So any of those that you can find on there, and and just read through them and see uh, different different reformers what they uh, taught obviously goes much deeper than just Luther. I mentioned his lieutenants. There's a bunch of them. Uh, Calvin sent out hundreds of ministers to France, Italy, uh, to the New World, to Brazil. He sent missionaries everywhere. Uh, and so, you know, they have a whole plethora of different writings and, and essays and things to consider as well. Uh, so just being involved in, in meeting all those different perspectives and the fact that they were dealing with a world that was changing like ours is, and they were trying to uh, try, trying to find ways of enacting a meaningful change reform and spreading uh, the gospel because they believed it would change people's lives. Uh, so yeah, the, the, look at, look at those things. I think that if we embrace that attitude, uh, it, it could really uh, be transforming. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. And, I, and I'll plug to end the podcast, the, the Liberty University History Program. You can go online, liberty.edu. And uh, I think your contact information is there too, Dr. S. Wine, if yep. people want to email Absolutely. you or have a question. Uh, but uh, yeah, if you get to, if you go to Liberty University and the grad, uh, well, you teach undergrad too. So undergrad or grad history. Undergrad, you, you'll, yep. you'll probably get Dr. S. Wine. Uh, I know I had you for two classes, I think, Herman, uh, not Herman, yeah. uh, historiography. And yep. I can't remember the other one. That's <laughs> so bad. There's another one. Yeah, I forget. Uh, I think it was an online class or something like that. So. They all run together. It's a problem. Right? They all run together when I look back. <laughs> um, but uh, anyway, hey, God bless. Thank you so much. And uh, look forward to having you on again at some point. Thank you, John. I appreciate it. It was a lot of fun. You know how to book flights and hotels. 
all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. 